This is the What Now Podcast. And the fact that education and my faith could so seamlessly connect like that. For me, it's hard to unravel, you know, whether I have a love for education or a love for the church. To me, they came together in a love for BYU and church education. And almost from that first semester, when I saw the integration of faith and learning uh, in a seamless and powerful way, I just, I knew I wanted to be part of that. I knew I wanted to be in education and I knew it would probably eventually be in church education. This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss topics surrounding cultural norms in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an effort to create more understanding, hope, and healing for our church community. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Clark Gilbert, Church Commissioner of Education and former president of BYU Pathway Worldwide, about how online education is being used to educate everyone from mothers who have never finished college to young adults who might not qualify for a four-year degree. Pathway is a unique tool being used to educate an increasingly international church population in an effort to foster more leadership and empowerment throughout our church culture. BYU Pathway inspires hope by opening new opportunities in higher education through study and faith. So thanks so much for meeting with me. Thank you. So let's start by getting to know you a little bit. So where are you from? I grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Paul and Susan Gilbert were my parents. And I was born in the Bay Area, but spent most of my life growing up in the Scottsdale, Arizona area. And do you come from a large family like you have? We had four children. I'm the oldest of four. And all of my family live in Arizona now but us. So tell me, what is your educational background? So I grew up in a home where education was highly valued. Both my mom and dad have law degrees. My dad got his when he was young. My mom got hers when we had all grown up. And more than just the formal education, they really created a house of learning. We went on family trips. We had this thing called Gilbert Academy where we studied about where we were going and had to do reports. And and then in formal school, my dad would always say, I don't care what grades you get, just as long as you do your best. Now, unfortunately, in our schools and with my dad, that meant, well, if you don't get straight A's, then we were, but he really meant, yeah, he really meant that he wanted us just to do our best and that that ethic really carried with all of us growing up in, in that home. Okay, so there's a strong emphasis, clearly, the Gilbert Academy, full yeah. <laughs> force yeah. on the road trip. I love it. Okay, so what motivated you to go into the field of education? You know, I got to BYU as a young undergraduate student, and it just changed my life. I'd grown up in the Scottsdale area. The church was strong, but we were definitely the minority. I had great examples in my ward growing up and a lot of my young men's leaders became mission presidents and, you know, just outstanding people. But I was always very clearly the minority, very clearly different. And I got to BYU and for the first time I fit and my confidence soared and the fact that education and my faith could so seamlessly connect like that. For me, it's hard to unravel, you know, whether I have a love for education or a love for the church. To me, they came together in a love for BYU and church education. And almost from that first semester, when I saw the integration of faith and learning uh, in a seamless and powerful way, I just, 
I knew I wanted to be part of that. I knew I wanted to be in education and I knew it would probably eventually be in church education. And so a lot of it really started there. And I went on this journey for a while in other institutions before I came to the church educational system. But I really tie it all back to that, my home growing up, and then that really seminal experience as a freshman on the campus of BYU. And that just came together that you had found your people, so to speak. Yeah, and I, and I wasn't different, and it was good to be who we were. And who we were meant you could explore and learn, and all of that was part of the gospel. And I'd say I was a solid student coming into BYU in the sense that I got good grades. I had that premise from my dad, do your best, and I worked hard. But I never thought I was a smart student until I got into the BYU environment and something changed between that and my mission, learning Japanese and representing the church that freshman year and mission experience coalesced. And I came home from my mission quite convinced I would go into higher education at some point in some way. Okay, so when you, so you went to Brigham Young University, and then what did you do after BYU? Uh, Right after BYU, we went to Stanford. I I did a master's program there in East Asian Studies. I did know I was going to go into education, but I thought maybe I'll start with government and international relations, do something in the State Department, because I had served my mission in Japan. Okay, so your mission kind of sparked that. It kind of led me there. But I did an internship in the business area looking at innovation, and I was like, it was a match made in heaven. And so I got to Stanford. I was in the East Asian Studies program, but I studied innovation in Japanese companies and how organizations tried to do new things. And when I graduated from Stanford, I knew I needed a little bit of work experience, but I already had planned from that point to get a PhD. I worked for a couple of years in strategy consulting. And then we got my doctorate at Harvard Business School, focused on innovation and change in organizations. Okay. And you collaborated with Elder Christensen yes. there as well. So Clay Christensen was on my dissertation committee, and his research had looked at what he called disruptive innovations, which were really innovations that were different and often undervalued by traditional firms that eventually led to their demise. And his research said that traditional firms would never invest in a disruptive innovation because they undervalue it and kind of look down at it. My research was, well, what if they know it's coming and they still mess it up? It took me to study the U.S. newspaper industry and media and how they would respond to the internet. It was a great topic and a great place to study and something I really enjoyed doing. That's great. And look at how that has transpired right now. I mean, everyone gets their news off the internet. Yeah, absolutely. It's all (laughs) digital and and it's a classic example of a disruptive innovation. Mm -hmm. So how did you take that experience at Harvard Business School with your PhD and transfer that over to Pathway? So Kim Clark was the dean of the Harvard Business School. He would eventually become the president of BYU-Idaho. And I was there the day he announced he was leaving. We had an experience together that was very personal and spiritual and inspiring to both of us about what led him there. That eventually brought me to BYU-Idaho as well. In fact, the day he announced he was leaving, he said to me in the parking lot, you watch, the Lord will gather people to Rexburg and they won't even know why, but yeah, he's preparing a work to bless children all across the church. 
And I looked at him straight in the eye and I said, oh, that would be wonderful for those people. And, you know, <laughs> and your name's at the top of the list, Mark. <laughs> and so a year later, I found myself in so expert. Yeah. Yeah. And that was amazing. And so I think, yeah, certainly my research had an impact, but I think the causality almost was reversed. I really believe the Lord gave me the opportunity to get in the Harvard Business School. In fact, one of my friends said, uh, look, we both know you're not smart enough to go to the Harvard Business School. The Lord <laughs> must have placed you here for a purpose. And and he gave me a window into this problem that I would spend the next 15 years of my life working on in different forms for the church. And Elder Kim B. Clark invited me to come with him to BYU-Idaho. But our answer really was, I was up for tenure at Harvard Business School. I was getting offers from other schools around the country. And this was just not on our radar. Was that a hard decision for you to go to be with you? You know, the answer was easy. The Lord gave Christian and I a clear answer. And, you know, I don't want to take you through the whole story of that on this podcast, but it was really clear that's where we were supposed to go. It didn't mean it was easy. I had spent so much time investing in my career, doing formal research mm -hmm. so that I could, you know, work in one of these institutions. But Right as I got to that moment, he had a different path and it changed our life. But we knew it's where we were supposed to be. And so I came to BYU-Idaho. I was given responsibility for the online learning program. Uh, so was that your first introduction to online education? Absolutely. I am originally a classroom case method. Look the students in the eyes, read the classroom, read body language, write it on the chalkboard, build on people's comments. And I knew from my research that the model and structure of online learning would be very different. Mm -hmm. But I myself was not someone from that field or domain. I had to learn it like someone coming in new. And So that's a direct departure from what you were doing. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say my research looked at new innovations like online learning. In many ways, we talked about the newspapers and the Internet. In many ways, online learning is just the same thing versus traditional classroom learning on a residential campus. And it has all those same characteristics. And so while I wasn't an online course developer, it was very intuitive for me to see how different it would be because of my actual formal research. Right. And you were studying disruptive business strategy that's right and, and this ties into it yeah. because it's totally disruptive yeah. right it's a totally different very different model and it was interesting because while i was at byu idaho i launched the first pathway program was created there and elder clark had come to me and said we need to think about ways for people who could get education who will never come to this campus and that was the real impetus of the pathway program and, you know, we piloted it, we worked out the first model, we identified the first three sites were in Mesa, Arizona, Nampa, Idaho, and Manhattan, New York, three very different very locations. Different. And I knew it was going to change the future of church education. And right in the middle of that, I was asked to leave and come run the church media companies. You know, I'd already given up my career. Like, why am I being asked to leave what again? And, yeah. and I obviously there, I had a clear background in the internet and media. Yeah. And then, and I came down here to Salt Lake from BYU, Idaho for a five-year gap 
in my role in academic administration. And we ran KSL TV, KSL Radio, Desert News. But most importantly, we created a new group inside of that called Desert Digital Media. And today it's much bigger than the TV or the radio or the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And I think that experience taught me the power of having a separate group for these new innovations when they're very different than the traditional model. Mm -hmm. You know, and then I was called back to be president of BYU-Idaho. And Pathway reported under me, but I probably knew better than anyone because of my, both my formal research and my experience with the church media companies, that it was different and it needed to be managed differently. And initially, I just set it up as a separate group inside of BYU-Idaho with autonomy. But the Church Board of Education and the First Presidency eventually asked us to separate it out completely and created BYU Pathway. And then I was asked to be the first president of this new organization. And when was that? In 2017? 2017. So I was called as president of BYU-Idaho in 2015. Pathway existed, but it was a division of BYU-Idaho. And then in 2017, we spun that out and set it up here in Salt Lake. So it could be really a resource to the whole church. So you had a relatively short term as Very short term. Yeah, I'm sure... I don't know if I've looked at every president's tenure, but I'm sure it will be the shortest tenure of any president at BYU-Idaho. Is it because they really wanted you to lead out on the Pathway program and they saw you as the visionary for that and what you could do with well, it? Well, yeah, and I, and I think, you know, BYU-Idaho itself is a powerful, wonderful, student-centered teaching university. And it's an innovation in and of itself. And yet here comes Pathway and it's very different all over again. Mm-hmm. And I think they knew I was used to seeing different models and building culture and systems and alignment around those different models. And that's what we needed for BYU Pathway. I think the other reason is that it really needed to be here in Salt Lake because it's a church resource. Right. President Nelson said to us that Pathway is for the kingdom. And I think, among other things, what he meant by that is it's not a, a division of BYU-Idaho. It's not part of a university. It's a global resource for the church itself. And we, in these you know, two and a half years, we've really seen, we, we work with the missionary department. We work with the seminaries and institutes. We work with area well, presidents. Your educated population, they never thought would be educated. Yeah. It, right? I mean, you're yeah. reaching indigenous people in many respects, all, right? All, all over the place. Yeah. And people we didn't, you know, Elder Clark... And I often would refer to them as the hidden many. And even here in the United States, 55% of the church doesn't have any college degree, associate or bachelor's degree. So, and then when you go to the international church, of course, it's much higher. But most people, they get really excited when they hear, oh, Pathway is growing in the Philippines and in Ghana and in Brazil. And they don't realize there's 10,000 Pathway students in the state of Utah. You know, it's right here in our home markets and and people don't realize there's pathway students in their ward. And I, I might have. We have some in our ward. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because the church places such a heavy emphasis yeah, on education. Yeah. And many people haven't finished their degree and they feel like something's missing in their life. Right. I mean, they either didn't have the opportunity, they got married too young or they just didn't want to at that time yeah. in their life. 
and now they're revisiting that and they really want education and they feel confidence when they get yeah. education. You're describing a group. The average age of a pathway students is over 30. Really? And in the 30 plus category, and we really divide them into three groups. It's 18 to 24 year olds who never thought they could go to college, didn't have confidence they could do it. 24 to 30 year olds who recently stopped out, we call it stopped out of college. And then 30 plus who thought they missed their window. And like, this is the group you just described. And by the way, that 30 plus age group, 70% are women, right? And uh, in that group, sometimes they need the education to help provide for a family. Sometimes they need the education as to be an example for their children. In fact, Mary Alice, the, the number one predictor of a child getting an education isn't the father, isn't even the income of the family. It's whether the mother had an education. Interesting. So if you can educate mothers, you'll see their children grow up and get education. Okay. Right. So anyway, and, and you see in those students who come back, just a spark of confidence. Right? One of my friends is a bishop not far from where you live in Orange County. And he said, look, I know we do this for the temporal self-reliance of the church. And we do this because people need to provide for their families. But he said, if none of that happened, he said, I've had nine people in my ward in Orange County go through Pathway. They're physically different. They look you in the eye. Yeah. They raise their hand in church. They volunteer. They accept a calling. And and you can see it. As the students who come get their education, either of those who didn't think they could do it or those who are coming back late. There's just a spark of hope. Yes. And it's it's powerful. And so if I had to summarize what we do for many of these students, it's at its core is teaching hope and confidence and belief that they have the divine potential to be more than they thought they could be. And then the gospel is woven into that, isn't it? A lot of people are, come study what we're doing, and we've had articles written about us in the Chronicle of Higher Education and Inside Higher Education, and, and there's some things that are in the traditional academic world that make us innovative and new and unique, but anyone who writes our story and doesn't tell the story of the spiritual aspect of what we're doing misses the story, and in fact, I had one friend who owns a huge uh, retail operation in the Intermountain West. And he said, hey, Clark, you can run all the pathway sites in our retail locations at night because they sit empty. And I said, well, we don't need that because we have institutes everywhere. (laughs) But he said, but you got to take the church content out because, you know, we're not a religious group. And I said, that's why this works. Yeah, that defeats the purpose. Yeah, and, and it's like, it's both an outcome and a cause The causal arrow goes both ways here because when you teach people their divine potential, then they realize they can do more. Mm -hmm. And when they realize they're worth more, they want to grow closer to God. President Eyring said education, uh, or conversion, sorry, conversion brings a drive to learn and, and become more. And, and that's what happens. And so we see people who come through pathway, not only do they grow intellectually, but they become deeper spiritually. And it happens across the board. You see it everywhere we go. I love that. So how is Pathway being used as a tool to educate a broader worldwide yeah. audience? You talked about being tied in with the missionary program. Yeah. You know, a couple of neat things happened this year. One is the First Presidency approved 
a letter that goes out to all missionaries serving in the field that says, no matter who you are, no matter where you're serving, you're pre-approved for BYU Pathway upon the completion of your mission. And just think about that for a minute. Ten years ago, we could not say that. Think about the logistical probability of bringing everyone in the worldwide church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to Rexburg or Laia or Salt Lake or Provo, yeah. right? And in some cases, the cost of the airplane ticket exceeds the cost of the degree, right? Yeah. And But now with Pathway, we are literally organized everywhere the church is. And I was in Ghana earlier this year, and I sat there and looked at this entire stake center full of Pathway students. And I thought, no matter where you live in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you ha now have access to an affordable, high-quality, transformative education. And that letter to all missionaries is, is a step change in the church educational system. That just was not possible 10 years ago. Well, then it allows all those missionaries to go get educated and then bring that leadership and education back to their countries. Yeah. And right? your comment about leadership is really interesting because, you know, I just came back last week. I was in the Philippines and, you know, I look at our pathway students and their stake presidents and Relief Society presidents. One Relief Society president got up, mother of eight, finishing her degree. And I just thought, how That's in the so world amazing. is she doing all of that You know, yeah. at once? And stake presidents and uh, return missionaries, the core of the church, right? So and are you seeing a direct correlation between pathway and getting their degree and leadership? And leadership. In fact, in Africa, I'll give you just a, a couple of insights there. 15% of our students in Africa are in a bishopric or a stake presidency. That's amazing. Almost 40% of our students in Africa are in some presidency, Elders Quorum, Relief Society, primary or bishopric stake presidency, 40% of our students. And I've talked to the area presidencies in the Africa West area, for example, and they say things like, look, our constraint to growth here is not conversion. People grab onto the light of the gospel everywhere. Mm -hmm. Our constraint to growth is leadership yeah. and pathways playing a critical role in expanding the leadership capacity of the church in those areas. That's amazing. So how is Pathways model different from these other online programs? Yeah, we do study. There's some really good ones. And there's some really bad ones. So when I when I first got this assignment, I, I wanted to understand who does this really well. And there's some really ad admirable programs. You look at ASU Online mm -hmm. and Western Governors University. They're smart. Their programs are high quality. There's a lot to admire, and we work together with these groups and share ideas and best practices, but there's at least three fundamental differences with our program and most other, and I'm going to say quality online programs. The first is our program is designed interactively. We call it the learning model, where you teach and lift other students. That means our, all of our people think online learning is sitting by your laptop by yourself, all alone, working through material. That is not BYU Pathway. Yeah. First of all, they gather once a week in co in groups at institutes all across the church. Okay, so they have a face-to-face. -face they have a face-to-face. -face. Second of all, the actual course material is interactive. You do things in discussion groups, in paired teams, in uh, group projects, peer evaluation. The entire thing is designed to be interactive and social. 
And how do they do that? Are they all meeting up in a group online? And sometimes we'll use we'll, sometimes we'll use chat technology. Sometimes it will be asynchronous with email. Sometimes we use Zoom, a video conferencing tool. And it's amazing. And you'll have students working all across the church in these teams and they know each other and, and it's forming connections. So if you had in your mind that online learning is independent study, we couldn't be more antithetical to that model. In fact, President Henry B. Eyring, when I was over online at BYU-Idaho, gave a talk to the whole university and said it would be tempting to take advantage of the wonders of technology to allow learners to learn on their own. And he said, but the most transformational experiences happen when we're lifting and being lifted by other people. And then that's empowering too. You're helping someone else out and someone who thinks they can't do it and you're kind of a it is. mentor. It, you know, I said, that, look, yeah. the power of the program is that it's gospel-based. But if I had to say a second thing is, is that because it's gospel-based, you don't sit and you know read a book online. I was listening to a, a Yale podcast this summer for, by the way, we do Gilbert Academy and the next generation oh. of Gilberts. And <laughs> we were doing a American oh, founding in DC, New York, and Boston this summer. And I was listening to a revolutionary podcast from Yale Open University. It was her class lectures. And I thought, well, the podcast is no different than going to class. You go to class and listen to someone for 55 minutes, and that's class. And at BYU Pathway, the entire structure is not a lecture where you sit there and listen to someone, but it's peer-based, and you're lifting and teaching what you're learning, and you're working on things in teams. And it just it really is the skill sets you're going to need to be an effective parent, to serve in the church. And even in the workplace, one of our students from Brazil was interviewing. He wasn't even done with his degree. He was working on a certificate. And he said he was interviewing with Google Brazil. And it was a team-based exercise they had to do. And everyone else was panicking. And he's like, I do this every week at Pathway. And he's the only one who got hired. You know, and So they're learning these skills that are attractive in the workplace. For sure. Yeah. And to network. Absolutely. Right? Networking, so, collaboration, yeah. team building. I mean, most every company yes. has that kind of model, right? And Mary Alice, I was that was a long first part of this answer, but that's one thing that's different about our courses. The second thing is obviously they're all gospel based. Even our web design course has gospel principles infused in it. And then the third thing is we teach our students three courses. They're kind of foundational courses, a life skills course, a professional skills course, and a uh, university skills course. That's our foundational curriculum. And if you go through those three courses, the students do so well as they progress through the rest of the curriculum. And we teach math and writing in the context of those applied courses. So instead of reading Beowulf in a GE course, you do a cover letter and a resume and you learn to edit it to acquire some of your writing skills. And instead of doing algebraic substitution, you do a family budget. Uh, You calculate the pre-post income differential of having a certificate and not having a certificate. In so real-life application. It's you very applied. You can actually it's, use in your It's very applied. Business, and, and, family. and our students all start after those three courses with a job skill certificate. 
So we have 30 different job right. skills. And you're familiar with, did some work a year or two ago on the social media marketing. Mm-hmm. Instead of waiting till the end of college to get that skill, yeah. We do that right up front. So smart. And, and we found with students who weren't confident, didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a family history of education, mm-hmm. putting the job skill up front made them realize, you know, hey, hey I, can do this. I can do this. And yeah. they get a better job or they get hired and yeah. they're like, okay, I'm going to keep going. The and positive we, cycle starts. Yes. And we found yeah. that has a huge impact on retention. I love that. And it makes sense, right? I mean, you get the confidence up yeah. front. I've got a skill set. I can actually do something. I'm doing well at this job. I'm going to keep going. Yes. that's And it's, again, yeah. it, the whole theory of Pathway is building and scaffolding confidence over time mm-hmm. to the point by the time you're done, you pull all the scaffolding away and they realize they can it. do all of this. Yeah. It's awesome. I love that model. So do you see Pathway disrupting the traditional academic experience at a physical institution? You know, it's it's interesting. In the theory of disruptive innovation, that quote-unquote disruption doesn't start at the top of the market. It's not like Pathway is going to disrupt Harvard University or BYU. It actually happens more at the bottom end of the market. So low-performing community college, expensive or low-graduating public universities. Mm -hmm. That's where we think, as some students start to say, wait a second, this is a lot more affordable. The outcomes are really strong. I get a job immediately. It's Mm gospel-based. But see, most of our students, they're not choosing between pathway and another school. They're choosing between pathway and not getting an education. But over time, you do see some students saying, wait a second, that's a lot more affordable. It's a lot more flexible especially if I'm an adult learner, I'm a mom or I'm working or we have a profile. One of our students, she was a mother of four, had a very difficult divorce, knew she needed to go back and get some education and and didn't want to spend the rest of her life working in an hourly job, but didn't want to leave her kids. And so she, what do I do? And she was going to go to the local university and she just realized I can't be there four or five days a week. And with Pathways, one day a week at the gathering, the rest is all done online. And that flexibility, mm-hmm. you know, let, her, let her do things. More flexible. Yeah. yeah, and it gives them the opportunity to advance. And actually, it's interesting because if they can get through the Pathway program, they might advance to higher education and get that's a right. master's. That's and right. Have that confidence, right? Yeah. The scaffolding that's is right. down. We, we, we have just amazing stories of people who come through Pathway Connect, got the certificate, then a degree. And went on and got a master's degree. Our students yeah. have gotten a law degree. We have judges in Mexico started in Pathway. Amazing. Amazing. So I want to bring this up. This is interesting yeah. to me because a lot of people see online school as not as credible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So how do you debunk that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I told you there are high quality providers and low quality providers. And and you can see real stark differences between the two. The low quality providers, by the way, some of them are for profit and some of the low quality online providers are in traditional universities. And I always ask, is it student centric? Is it is the institution committed to quality? Is the focus on the online program itself? And what are the outcomes? You know, and if you look at those, you can see the real differences. And for us, one of the measures of quality is Uh, Do the students achieve the outcomes that are designed into the courses? And for us, it's a very simple calculus. We have assessments 
on outcomes that are the same as the campus at BYU-Idaho. They're the exact same assessment. So it's not like, well, I wonder if they got good grades or not good grades. It's, no, did they get the same scores on the same assessments and same requirements as the students on campus? And for our online courses, they're not like just the same course. They're the same assessment. So that's one measure of quality. The other one for us is just the amount of effort we put into our instructors. Our online instructors are really committed. They're trained, they're evaluated. We have high expectations for them. If they don't meet them, we don't renew their contracts. We have over 1,500 online instructors. They're so you have amazing. a high bar for your instructors. Very high bar, high quality assurance and training and measurement. And you look at online providers who are good at what they do, mm-hmm. measurement and outcomes and assessment are at the core of what they do, as is being student-focused and student-centered. You know, And then, of course, for us, on top of all of that, it's just these courses uh, do have an impact beyond the academic outcomes. You know, what Elder Holland once asked us, well, but are they getting married? <laughs> you know, do they meet each other? And yeah. And of course, we what have. What does that look like? It's amazing. And in fact, two things happen. One of the things we often remind people when they look at what we're doing is, A, how does this compare to the traditional experience? And the answer is really well on so many dimensions, academically, spiritually, social outcomes, job placement. We track all of that. But the other thing is, remember, that's probably the wrong measure. So if the measure was, how does it compare to traditional experience? It's, the answer is, it's pretty powerful. On some dimensions, it's even superior. But remember, that's not our measure because for most of these students, the alternative was no nothing, right. right? Compared to that, it's transformational, yeah. right? And, and, but we do measure these things. We look at graduation rate. We look at job placement. 72% of our students have an improved job upon the completion of their certificate. That's higher than almost any other university. Our graduation rate is higher than all public universities, except for one in the state of Utah, right? And so students get jobs. The cost, the debt is much lower. And the financial stability to their family and the stability of their home as a family, having people who are earning better income, more educated, probably have a better home. In fact, the only thing we are so committed to quality, the only thing I worry about sometimes is we've made it too rigorous. We put so much requirement on these students. We had the BYU Pathway reports to the Church Board of Education, and we had several members who are in the Quorum of the Twelve on our executive committee and Sister Bingham, who's the Relief Society president, come meet some of our students. And I think when they saw the sacrifices these students make, Mm -hmm. yes, we are committed doctrinal to education. It's not just that we have a culture as a people around education. It grows out of our doctrine. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it does. there's a huge burden and requirement on many of these students who are working one, two, three jobs, have children they're balancing, yeah. have to work hard to get to the gathering. And, you know, and I'm sometimes overwhelmed when I, you know, I was just in the Philippines and asked who traveled the furthest to be here. And one student was traveling almost two hours each way to be at the gathering. And she came on a, on a motorcycle cab, and then a jeepney cab, which is like a minibus, and then a metro bus. 
every Thursday night to be to the gathering. I described that mother who's serving as a Relief Society president, eight children, fathers who are working two, three jobs. Well, that's where I like that you're weaving in the gospel into this program because it gives them the faith and the determination that, you know, there's a higher power behind you helping yeah. you get educated, helping you finish this, yeah. right? It, because it would feel so overwhelming. If you there's no other way. Right. Uh, I remember sitting in Peru with Elder Carlos Godoy, who is in the presidency of the 70. And mm-hmm. Elder Godoy had learned English as a young person. And, and as he looked out, we had almost a thousand students there. And he looked out at all these students and he was feeling overwhelmed. I think he could remember how hard it was to learn English. And and he had a whole talk prepared and he scrapped the whole thing and he got up there and he said, what we're asking you to do is so hard. And you cannot do this unless you include the Lord in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Great. Thank you so much for your oh, time. Oh, thanks for and doing your the interview. And your leadership in this initiative. It's changing millions well, of lives. Well, it's, it's an exciting time and it's... It's something that's supposed to happen right now. I, I think we've always wanted this. President Henry B. Eyring talked about reaching students around the world in his Rick's College inaugural address. And no, President Bateman was sending CD-ROMs to Mexico and Brazil. But suddenly, for the first time, we have a global infrastructure. We have online courses. We have Wi-Fi and chapels all across the church. We have a welfare and self-reliance program that pairs with this. And the Lord does his work in its time and season. And this is that time and season. And we have the technology to do it. Yeah. It's great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mary Alice. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. I invite you to help us create positive change by sharing this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. I also invite you to follow the What Now podcast on Instagram at podcast what now for inspirational messages and highlights from our past and present podcasts. Thank you for leaving positive ratings and written reviews, which really help the podcast to grow. To leave a positive review, just subscribe to the podcast and scroll down the episodes and you will see where you can leave a positive rating and written review. We never say goodbye. We say what now? This has been a What Now podcast production.